So just kind of give you an overview of what Paul is doing and why he's doing it. Uh, one of the reasons why he's doing what he's doing, where he's dealing with Israel, um, is the church that he's writing to, there seems to be some, uh, many believe there was, a, there was some tension between Gentiles and Jewish believers. And so Paul wants both of them to be a little more humble, uh, to say the least. So he's been talking about salvation and how God goes about saving us and he's gone into a lot of details about all of that. And so he's dealing with the nation per se. So we know, when you read through the Bible, you notice that God deals with individuals and with nations. He has a plan for individuals and for nations. Um, uh, and he has there's certain nations, obviously, that he works a great deal with or that have a lot to do with his plan. We see a lot of that when it comes, obviously, to Israel. Uh, and you see a lot of that with Egypt as well. Um, when it comes to all the prophecy, um, we don't know all the, uh, all the things he has planned for America, but we know that America is not one of those countries that live forever, like Egypt and Israel. America will soon be something different, whatever that is. Um, so the idea here is to explain about the nation of Israel. He explained their present state, that Israel as a nation is in a state of unbelief. That's the general characteristic of the nation of Israel. They're in a state of unbelief, and because of that, because of their disobedience, they have been kind of placed on the side. In God's plan, they've been kind of pushed to the side uh, where they're not all that involved in what's going on with the propagation of the gospel and all of that. They will become front and central again in the future, but right now they're kind of on the side and the focus is on the church. But it's not going to remain that way. And that's what Paul is going to be explaining to these individuals. It's not going to remain that way. And then talks about this idea that because God has, and I'm paraphrasing it and summarizing it, but because God has placed Israel on the side, that doesn't mean that God is finished with Israel. And that's, they believe, you know, as scholars look at the book of Romans and try to figure out what's going on behind the scenes, uh, there's a belief that some believe that, that God was finished with Israel. There's some who believe that today. Uh, that Israel as a nation no longer really has a part in God's plan. But that would be untrue. Uh, remember we went through the covenants that God made and saw that they were uh, unconditional covenants and they've not yet been fulfilled, the Abrahamic covenant, the land covenant, and those are going to be fulfilled by God. Uh, and so God, because of who he is, is not done with Israel because those covenants must be fulfilled. And a lot of the prophecy that we understand in the Bible is based on those covenants. So even though Israel is in unbelief, basically, and salvation is primarily happening with the Gentiles, not, not exclusively, because Jewish people do come to, to faith in Christ. Paul is then, as we, as we begin to read again, we're going to see that basically Paul is going to explain that part of this blindness that Israel is involved in, as Gentiles uh, believe in the God of Israel, that's who we believe in, the God of the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God's going to use the church then to make Israel, in a sense, jealous and reveal to her um, what she's missing out on and get them thinking back on the right track. 
again. And so all that's part of God's plan for the future. Uh, and so he wants to explain that. And I think what, the reason why he's doing all of this is, is he wants to show that when it comes to carrying out the plan of God, because God uses people in carrying out his plans. It's like you know, when it comes to saving you and I, God used people in our life to present to us the gospel. Uh, he didn't just drop it in from the sky or put it in a dream. He, people came into our lives. And in some cases, it was our parents. Usually, it's a combination of people, but that's kind of the idea. So there's, a, there's this interdependence that, that exists. And so when it comes to the nation of Israel and the church and the future, there's that synergistic kind of thing that's going on. Uh, and Paul wants them to be aware of that. So we'll begin. Uh, we left off last time in verse 13, so we'll begin in verse 14. And uh, again, he's talking about Israel and, and Israel's rejection of the message. So remember that when Israel rejected the gospel, that also meant that they were rejecting Jesus as their Messiah. That's the same thing for them. So when a Jewish person gets saved today, and when a Jewish person gets saved in the future, salvation is the same. It's by placing your faith in Christ. But for the Jew, there's one added thing. It's not, it's not a, a, an additional requirement for salvation, but it's also the understanding that Jesus is their Messiah. He is the Messiah of Israel. And so there's this acknowledgement that the nation of Israel rejected their Messiah. And that's kind of been a stumbling block for a lot of them today because they don't, they don't want to admit that. Uh, and that kind of gets in the way. So verse 14, but how can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce the gospel of good things. But all did not obey the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our message? So faith comes from what is heard, and what is heard comes through the message about Christ. But I ask, did they not hear Yes, they did. And I'm going to, I'll finish that up in a minute. So as he asks these questions, Paul always does this throughout the book of Romans to make it clear that the gospel, that, that salvation is, is nothing outside of the gospel. It, that's, that is the message. And everyone is saved the same way. Uh, so if you listen to John Hagee, part of his problem is, is he believes Israel gets saved a different way. Uh, I, I used to know what that was, and I don't remember anymore what he teaches, but it's just, he's just off base um, completely. Um, and he ends up saying some other things that are untrue. Uh, I think he ends up saying that Jesus never said he was the Messiah, and it just gets weird uh, after a while. Huh? Oh, well, I haven't heard that, but I've not really checked, checked into all that. There are some people who do that kind of thing. Yeah. So again, the idea here is that uh, an individual needs to hear uh, the gospel. When he says, how can they hear without a preacher? Remember, that doesn't necessarily mean a pastor. That's anyone who makes a declaration. Obviously, the individual has to be sent. Quotes from the Old Testament, how beautiful are the feet of those who announce good things. They did not obey the gospel. Uh, remember that when it comes to the, to the, to the invitation to salvation, uh, there's a two-fold way to understand that, that yes, people are invited to come to Christ, but they're also commanded to come to Christ, right? We, we are invited to believe the gospel, 
but we're also uh, told to obey the gospel. It's the same way to describe what's going on. Because the message is coming from the one true God, um, then to reject the gospel is not only to reject God, it's to disobey God. Because you are uh, rejecting who he is. God is, because of who he is, being God, uh, the one and only supreme being, all things come from him, all life depends upon him, uh, everything emanates from him. To reject him is to disbelieve him, is to disobey him, is to rebel against him. It's all those things combined. So the idea then that when an individual uh, refuses to uh, believe in Christ, that is also an act of rebellion against God. They are, they are disobeying God. Um, so it's, it's a sin like, like the other things. Um, they may not recognize that, but it doesn't always matter if someone recognizes that. Um, the bottom line is that's, that's, how, that's what God is describing it as. So all these things are kind of mixed in there at the same time to kind of give us a full understanding uh, that it's not just God, in a sense, is helplessly pleading, begging for people to believe in him and there's nothing he can do, or that people are just disinterested and they're not really guilty of anything. Remember that the rejection of the gospel um, is always a willful rejection of what they know to be true. Remember, you go back to Romans chapter 1, it makes that very clear that there are certain things everyone knows to be true. Everyone. Because God, yes, God has stated that. Everyone knows that God exists. They know that God is powerful. They know that God should be worshipped. They know that God is angry about sin. Even if an individual has a, a truncated view of sin, they, they don't recognize everything as being sinful, but they, they know that there's such a thing as wrong, they, they understand that, that God hates sin, is going to judge it. Everyone knows that. So then that's why it says that when people die, they all die without excuse. Uh, and that takes care, again, of that question that people have. You know, well, what about the individual who's born in the middle of China or Russia or Africa? If they've never heard the gospel, do they go to hell? And the answer is yes, they do. And they deserve to go there because of their sin. Um, and some would say, well, then it's unfair because they haven't heard the gospel. But there's a principle that we see in Romans 1, which is basically this. If man does not respond to a little bit of light, he's not going to respond to a lot of light. Now, that's a principle that the Bible lays out. So if God has revealed himself and there's a limited understanding, like, for example, again, man knows just from general revelation that God exists, that God is powerful, that God created. So that's a little bit of information. If they reject that, then explain the entire gospel, they're going to reject that as well. Because God never makes a mistake uh, when it comes to those things. So we, have to, uh, we need to recognize that God is, is um, a demanding God, but he's never evil. And obviously he's never wrong. So there's a, it's not, I wouldn't use the word harshness, but there's a firmness that's there. Uh, there, there God has placed on us responsibility and holds us to fulfill the responsibility he's given us because he's created us. And so if you reject God, you are held responsible for that and you can't claim ignorance or blame him because uh, you are incorrect when you do that. So again, he asked the question uh, there, who has believed our message? Then he describes, because he's already mentioned faith before in the earlier chapters, that salvation is by faith, which is trusting in God. And faith, we know, is a gift from the Lord. But how do we get that faith? Well, that faith comes to us through the hearing of the gospel. 
And, it, and of course, he says here, what is heard comes to the message about Christ. <coughs> so the question is, did they hear? He says, yes, they did. Um, Israel, Israel as a nation did hear the gospel message. And he quotes the Old Testament. Their voice has gone out to all the earth and their, wor- and their words to the ends of the inhabited world. But I ask, did Israel not understand? First, Moses said, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. I will make you angry by a nation that lacks understanding. And Isaiah says boldly, I was found by those who were not looking for me. I revealed myself to those who were not asking for me. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have spread up my hands to a disobedient and defiant people. So through these verses that he's quoting in the Old Testament, he's making this comparison between the Gentile world, you can even say the church, and Israel as a nation. So Israel, again, as a nation, is not, not only it was Israel God's chosen people, it's a very religious country. It's a very religious nation. We read through the Old Testament, they were ruled by God. Everything they lived by was given to them by God. They were, they were ruled by the law of God. Uh, there was always, everything, with, everything within the country was God-centered. When they were living correctly, it was all God-centered. Um, they were the ones that were always, in a sense, you would say, looking for God, uh, they were able to reveal God, or they were to reveal God, uh, and everything centered around him. The pagan nations around them weren't doing that. They were religious, but they weren't looking for the one true God. They were just, you know, believing in all their superstitions, trying to find ways to appease their gods. So what he's telling then the nation of Israel is, look, he says, you're going to become angry because there's just going to be this group of people, and they're not even a nation, and they weren't looking for me, and they found me, they know me, and I know them. That special relationship that I had with you, I have with them. And so that's the idea there with, with this comparison that he's making. Um, that's why I think in the future what we'll see, when we see this mass turning uh, to God and believing in the gospel by the nation of Israel, uh, there'll be a lot of, there's going to be a lot of push behind that, and part of that is just because of the way they think and what the scriptures are saying here. Yep. Uh, going back to where if someone didn't hear mm-hmm. about the Lord and they died and went to hell. Yep. Uh, would that scripture where it says the potter has the right to make one vessel to honor, one to dishonor, mm-hmm. would that apply there? You could, but that's not the point of the passage, so I wouldn't use it for that. Um, in dealing with God's sovereignty, that's absolutely true. But the danger with that is, if you just quote that verse, in a sense, out of context, then it sounds like that person never had a chance, and that they're just this helpless individual, and that God was cruel to them. But Romans 1 makes it clear that that was never the case, that that individual had an understanding of who God was, and they understood certain things about God, and they refused to believe. The grace of God that brings yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the revelation of God to all men is God's grace, because God doesn't owe that to us. Remember, the entire human race is, is, is in rebellion. So God owes them nothing except judgment. So in his goodness to us, he reveals his grace, or, his, his, or in his grace, he reveals the gospel message, which is an invitation and open to all uh, to receive the gift of salvation. So absolutely. Yep. So moving on then, 
Um, the, uh, the summary of all of this is that God's message to Israel is, is that God has spread his hands out uh, in invitation to them, even though they are, they are a disobedient and a defiant people. So as you get to chapter 11, he wants to make sure that they understand that this rejection is not total. Um, and, and so we would say it's not total in two ways. Number one, throughout the Bible, you always have mention of what they call the believing remnant of Israel. That no matter how much disobedience the nation gets into, and how many of them turn away from God or turn against God, there's always a small group of those who are faithful. It's been that way through all of history. Um, it's also not total in the sense that it's, it's, not, uh, it's not permanent. What I mentioned to you in the very beginning, where God has placed the nation to the side for a moment, basically. So it's not, it's not total in the sense that it's not permanent. You know, Israel, once again, will be front and center of all these things that take place. And again, Paul is emphasizing all that in part so that those who, um, uh, the Gentiles who are saved, won't become arrogant. We don't, we don't normally think this way, so it's hard, kind of hard for us to maybe grasp, grasp this kind of tension and division. But it's almost as if the Gentile believer might come alongside the Jewish person said, yeah, you guys reject the Messiah, but we believe, so you're out, <laughs> kind of thing. I mean, it just, sounds bizarre, but that kind of thing is going on. There is this very strong uh, um, division between the two, uh, which probably was started because of Israel's general attitude towards uh, Gentiles and you know, through the years kind of a thing. So, uh, is, is the believing remnant mm -hmm. still going on today? Yes, I believe so, yeah. Because yeah. it wouldn't be that there would be a, a remnant of the church. Would be a no, 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 it's a remnant of Israel. Yeah, because remember, the church is made up of only believers. Right. So the nation of Israel is made up of both believers and non-believers. Um, so when you, look at when you look at the future... Yeah. As opposed to the, mm -hmm. against the population. Well, yeah. I guess what, when, you, when, you, when, when, when we start to discuss this, the particulars of that, it's probably better for us to say that Christianity is getting smaller because Christianity or Christendom would include both believers and non-believers. Christendom, that's not a biblical term. The church is supposed to be only believers. So, or you could say, or you could use the term the visible church. So the visible church, we know that in every church there are those who may have joined the church and they're not true believers in Christ. Um, normally when hardship comes and persecution comes, it appears the church has shrunk, but all that means is that the real church remains. <laughs> because the riffraff kind of, you know, head for the hills um, kind of a thing. With Israel, it's a little different in the sense that it's a clear distinction, I think more of a clear distinction between believers and non-believers. Um, and then when you get into like the tribulation and all the stuff that goes on. Um, so so the, the Jewish remnant now would be uh, the completed Jews? The ones yes, who Messianic Jews. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So at the rapture, so at the rapture, all believers are taken. Um, Almost immediately, I'm summarizing, but almost immediately after the rapture, there will be 
many people coming to Christ the moment that happens because they were left behind. My personal belief is that most of those people would be Jewish just because of their familiarity with the Bible. And, you know, there's a ceiling of the 144,000, which are Jewish men, and they, they immediately go about and start evangelizing the world, you know, and that kind of thing. Uh, and so that's, so they are, I guess, the start of the new remnant, if that makes sense. We will, because all the non-believers are, are killed, or a majority of them are killed by both the Antichrist and by the earthquake. And so then, and the Jews who are leaving Jerusalem are believers, and they go to where they, basically as a nation, they call upon God to come and save them. And, um, and, and the important part of that is, as a nation, they repent of their iniquity. The Old Testament uses that in the singular. They're repenting of one thing, which is the rejection of Christ. They have a huge influence. Yeah. 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 No, that's what the Jehovah's Witnesses say. <laughs> All right. So, chap- so chapter 11, uh, verse 1. So Paul says, I asked then, has God rejected his people? Absolutely not. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, from the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel. So remember throughout the letter, Paul keeps raising questions he thinks people would ask. uh, And most believe that he even thinks of better questions than what other people might ask. So if Israel as a nation has rejected the message and they've rejected Christ, and God has held his arms out to them all day long, and they have been disobedient and defiant, it would make sense that God would reject them. And so he just goes ahead and asks the question. And the answer is, nope, God has not done that. So God has not rejected the nation uh, as a nation. And then again, he quotes from the Old Testament, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I am the only one left, and they are trying to take my life. So that is uh, Elijah, who... Uh, had that contest contest with the prophets of Baal and won and then Jezebel gets angry about it and she puts a contract out on his life and so he runs away and he's in a cave and he just wants to die and uh, he's kind of feeling sorry for himself to a degree Um, and so he thinks he's the only one left and verse 4 says but what was God's reply to him I have left 7,000 men for myself who have not bowed down to Baal In the same way, then, there is also at the present time a remnant chosen by grace. Now, if by grace, then it is not by works. Otherwise, grace ceases to be grace. So he's just using that as an illustration. In the Old Testament, Elijah thought he was the only one who was faithful to God because Israel as a nation was in disobedience to God. You know, they had had followed the way of Jezebel. Many of them were following uh, the prophets of Baal. And even though there was this big victory, you know, Elijah wasn't seeing uh, this big, he wasn't seeing a big revival. And so he just, it's like basically, okay, God, I'm done. Take me home. This is it. And God says, no, there's 7,000 men who've not bowed, they've not bowed the knee to Baal. So there's that remnant that Elijah didn't know about. And they were living their lives, in a sense, against the culture. And they weren't giving in and they weren't worshiping Baal. So that's why Paul says, so in the same way, 
God has his remnant. And then he reminds them that, again, this remnant is by God's grace. Because he always comes back to that. It's not by works. It's not because they've been obedient. It's not because they've been keeping the law of Moses. It's by the grace of God uh, that you have this remnant. So then, he says this. He says, what then? He says, Israel did not find what it was looking for, but the elect did find it. Uh, the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of insensitivity, eyes that cannot see, and ears that cannot hear to this day. So that reminds us of God's judgment, that there are, there are many aspects to God's judgment. So remember that, if you, again, you go back to Romans chapter 1, there are three times when God is going through this description of basically the human race, where it lists the sins that man is involved in. It says, and God gave them over. Okay, that's a statement of, of judgment. God, basically, man was pursuing his own thing, not pursuing God. And so God was basically saying, okay, that's what you want to do. I'm going to step back just a little bit and let you, let you go for it. The idea is it was a form of judgment because God was letting them uh, reap what they sow. But there's also mercy because God, they, they, they were given an opportunity to still come to God. If they, would, if they were to pursue these things and realize, you know what, this is a dead end, and they repent, it's all good. All right? Uh, but three times God does that uh, there. So here, it's a similar kind of a thing where you have individuals in unbelief, and so God then leaves them in their unbelief. All right? In the same way that when we talked about Pharaoh, remember there's, there are 10 statements in the Old Testament where it talks about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. This is the Pharaoh that when Moses was, was around. And five times it mentions God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And five times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. I mean, it just splits it right down the middle. You know, there's both of those things are true. So, and there's this idea um, that in the judgment of God, sometimes uh, God will judge in this way where you choose the path of sin and God then basically is, is causing or allowing whatever word you want to use sin to harden your heart to the gospel and you no longer hear it. Sometimes what we talk about when we talk about that is, and we know this to be true, that sometimes the more a person hears the gospel, the more insensitive they get to it, right? Because they, they've heard it before. Now, it's not always the case because there are some when they hear it again and again and again, some other things happen in life, and they then respond to the gospel. So th that doesn't mean that we suddenly say, well, they've heard the gospel 300 times. We better stop because they're getting hardened to it. That, that's a sinful, their sinful response to the gospel. We don't ever stop that. Uh, but we know that that can happen. So that's why when we pray for people, sometimes we'll ask. We'll ask the Lord not to harden their heart to the gospel. We're asking the Lord to soften their heart. We ask the Lord to open their eyes. We ask God to give them understanding. We ask God, the Holy Spirit, to convict them of their sin. Because a person can become very hardened to the gospel to where it means nothing. There are some famous um, heretics and uh, famous atheists now who were raised in Christian homes and educated in Christian colleges and some even went to seminaries. Um, Bart Ehrman, I think that's right, I think that's his name, is one of them. Went to uh, Wheaton College. Then he went to Moody Bible College, um, and now he goes around trying basically to destroy uh, the faith of college 
uh, age Christians. I mean, just absolutely seeks to destroy it. Um, he knows the language. He, he words things in such a way. Uh, I think it's very deceitful and subtle. It's, it's, a, it's a ploy, uh, a, uh, an oratory ploy that he uses to get people to doubt uh, things. Like, so he'll bring up, like for example, he'll say, uh, he'll have a group of young people that he's speaking to, and he'll say this. He said, uh, um, has your pastor, did you ever hear your pastor talk about the books that were excluded from the Bible? But what do most college-age kids do? Oh, I, I never heard that. And so he says, see, your pastor never told you. Well, technically, the reason why Pastor never told you is because that never happened. There were never any books excluded from the Bible. Right? He's, he's twisted what's taken place in history. All right? But a lot of churches don't. I mean, they, for whatever reason, they haven't talked about it. You can't talk about everything. So he immediately says it in that way to plant, to plant a what? A seed of doubt. You can't trust your pastor. He was hiding this from you because he knows that if you heard this, all right, that's what he does. And you know what? People fall for it. And there's a lot of other things that he says. It's the way he says things uh, to cause people to have doubts. There's answers to all these things. Very solid answers. None of these things are a secret. Yes, John? Yeah, it's kind of a ploy. It's like you go to a kindergarten or you indoctrinate or something because they're naive enough to believe it. Mm -hmm. You do the same thing with a sixth grade where that same mm -hmm. level of logic applies to a 19, 20, 22-year-old simply because they're not they're naive enough to believe these. Correct. And also, for those who are non-believers, even whether they were churched or not churched, it is human nature to want to remain in disbelief. So we sometimes, and maybe it's often we do this, all human beings do this, we gravitate to what we like, and we gravitate to what we already believe, and we gravitate to what we want to be true. It's difficult to be truly objective in any, in, on, on any level, not just religious truth. So if, I'm, you know, if I was raised in church and I went off and on and I really wasn't interested and I go to college and you know, I know whenever I go home on vacation, my parents are going to be a hard time about going to church with them. And so I go hear the speaker and the speaker begins to say things like they lied to you in church, they kept information. I'm going to gravitate to that. Like, ooh, I didn't know that. And so pretty soon that becomes ammunition. You go home, and mom and dad say, well, are you going to come to church with us? They go, nah. Since I found out that the pastor has been untruthful, I just don't think I can go there. And mom and dad are like, what are you, what are you talking about, untruthful? They say, well, you know, he didn't tell us that they, that they kept books out of the Bible. And if they don't know anything, they're like, oh, well, no, that, that didn't happen. Oh, yeah. And he just starts naming all this stuff he's heard. He hasn't looked it up, but he's names all, and so and that that's how that thing works. Uh, so again, there, there, that's why I, sometimes I'll talk about how we need to always strive to be intellectually honest, and that is again the striving to be objective and trying to get the information and not just what we like. So we all have a tendency to do this, human beings. It's, it's human nature. We all have to break out of that. That's why even as Christians, when we study the Bible, uh, we try to be objective. What does the Bible say? Not looking for what I want it to say. Yes? I heard a man say that uh, he talked about the book of Enoch. Yep. Then 
I said to him, you don't give that the same credence as scripture, do you? He says, yes, why wouldn't I? Jesus uh, quoted from it. Yep. Just because Jesus quotes in the book doesn't mean the book's scripture. I was told that I can't understand scripture until I read the book of Enoch. Really? Wow. There you go. Yeah. There, I mean, there's, there's all, I mean, and if you really are interested, almost all those are online. You can read them for free. Uh, there's a collection of books called The Lost Books of Eden. They're not lost because we have them, but anyway. Um, and then there's a slew of other books that have, people have tried to pass off saying that it's scripture. They're old, but it, you read them, and you, I think a lot of them you can tell right away, yeah, that's not scripture. Uh, but there's scholars who have investigated all those things, and they can just list, right, this is why it's not scripture. It's historically inaccurate. It's, there's, I mean, there's all this stuff that's out there. So it's there. The answers are there. But a lot of individuals aren't, they don't know that, and so these kinds of things can be very appealing um, to them. And so part of that is, going back to what we got off on, is part of God's judgment can be uh, that when an individual rebels against what they know to be true, that sometimes they will become more insensitive to it, uh, and that's God's judgment on them. And uh, uh, so we, we need to be very much aware of that when it, when it comes to that. So again, um, uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 9. So David says, Let their feasting become a snare and a trap, a pitfall and a retribution to them, let their eyes be darkened so they cannot see, and their backs be bent continually. So again, the idea there is the same. Is he's just all these different passages that he's quoting. It's the same idea that God judges, and they've rejected what they know to be true, and so God is basically allowing them to remain in that state, and that's where the nation of Israel uh, is. Uh, I think we've shared before. We've talked about this. And this is where sometimes you would, I would, you would think that when people find these things out, they would really want to begin to ask why, but it's not always the case. So, for example, in the synagogues, you know, they read through the Old Testament throughout the year, and there's a, 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 a plan they follow. But whenever they get to Isaiah 53, they never read it in public, never. Because it's pretty clear, just if you have any kind of background, any kind of familiarity with Christianity, it's clear who that's talking about. It's talking about Christ. And so they just don't want to go there. So they just don't read it. So you would think that people would say, well, wait a minute. Why are we skipping that? I mean, it's just like, that's the, you know, and that should cause us to want to ask questions and figure things out. But you also have, you have other people who have this idea. Oh, uh, if they thought it was important, we'd read it. Where we let others do our thinking for us. You see that in the New Testament when it comes to who Jesus is. Um, when Jesus, you know, there, there's, uh, there are certain miracles. We've talked before about the messianic miracles that Jesus did. Uh, and there was a tradition that Israel had, and Christ was under no, um, he, he didn't have to do these, but he did. And there were three different messianic miracles that the Jews believed only the Messiah could do. That if this guy, anyone comes along and does these miracles, that proves this is the Messiah. So one of them was the casting out of a demon where the person could not speak because they would practice exorcism, the, the priests would, would practice exorcism, uh, and in their incantations and all the things they would do to cast out a demon, they would always communicate with the demon and get the name. 
So if the person couldn't speak, you couldn't get the name. And so in their teaching, they said, but when the Messiah comes, because he's truly the Messiah, he's powerful, he can cast that kind of demon out, no problem. Well, Jesus did that twice. So the first time that Jesus does that, it talks about how people were amazed. They were amazed. I mean, and that's why they're amazed. They, they, I mean, they know. They know what that means. And so they're talking amongst themselves. But when Jesus does that for the first time, there are some Pharisees there. By this time, there's already this group of Pharisees following Jesus around. That's that group that's trying to find something against Jesus so they can officially say, this guy is no good. He's a heretic. We need to get rid of him. So they're standing there, and they see the same thing, and they hear the people murmuring. And so the Pharisees say, oh, no, 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 no. That doesn't mean that. He does that by the power of Beelzebub which makes no sense, and Jesus goes ahead later on and teaches on that, so it's like, you know, basically saying, how much sense does that make? Because the house divided against itself can't stand. Why would Satan cast out Satan and all of that? So, but that's what the Pharisees say. So the next time Jesus does that, so let me pause for a minute. So what many people think was going on there, this is friends of mine that I know, like Arnold and different people that, that, that are Messianic Jews. They said that the people of Israel, it's a very common thing, they would not really want to make a religious decision on their own. What did the Pharisees say? That, that's where you, I, I feel safer if I know that I'm agreeing with what the Pharisees say. So when they're talking among themselves, what could this mean? Because they know what it meant. The Pharisees gave them an out. So the next time Jesus casts out a demon from a guy who can't speak, some of those individuals that are seeing this for the first time are like, uh, we know what this is, but the scripture's a little different. It says, but some of them, meaning, not the Pharisees, some of the crowds say, oh, no, 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 power be Beelzebub. And all that shows there was a shift. In the beginning, the, the people see what's going on, the Pharisees say, this is by the power of Beelzebub. Next time Jesus does this miracle, there are some people here who see it for the first time, and now some from the crowd, they've already adopted, they've already embraced what the Pharisees said. They go, oh, no, that's not why. It's because he's doing it by the power of Beelzebub. So that's, the, that's a problem. Uh, we're, and so, and again, part of human nature. Not everybody's wired that way, uh, but sometimes we tend to wait because we, want to, we don't want to be wrong, right? It's either what does the group say or what does the leader say or whatever it happens to be. Um, and so that's what's going on. That's what goes on with, with uh, uh, some of the Jews even today. So verse 11 of chapter 11 it says, I asked them, have they, that's the nation of Israel, have they stumbled in order to fall? In other words, did Israel stumble in order to fall, like to fall out of uh, God's favor basically forever? That's what he's getting at when he says that. And of course he says, absolutely not. On the contrary, their stumbling, by their stumbling, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel jealous. So he comes right up and says that. So Israel rejected Jesus. We know that in God's plan, part of Israel's rejection is what led up to the crucifixion of Jesus. Because if the nation of Israel had embraced him as the Messiah, they wouldn't be screaming for him to be crucified. Now, I don't think that would have been a problem for God if they had accepted him, but they are, God already knew that wasn't going to happen. All right, so he says that they, had, that they stumbled over Jesus. That basically opens it up for us, so to speak. Um, to come to Christ, and now because we come to Christ, we make the nation of Israel jealous. 
So now if their stumbling brings riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full number bring? So it's a very simple um, case of, let's just stop and think about this. So because God did tell Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant that through Abraham all the world will be blessed. He said that. That still holds true. So Paul just points out a very simple principle, and that is, if this, this nation, which is so important, because they stumbled, still, out of that, all these great things happen to the Gentiles. Imagine, when they get it right, how much more of a blessing it's going to be to us. That's what he's talking about there. Um, and that's what he wants the church there uh, to understand. So, verse 13, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry. If I can somehow make my own people jealous and save some of them. For if their rejection brings reconciliation to the world, what, their, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Now, if the first fruits offered uh, up are holy, so is the whole batch. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. So he's going to begin to go through this whole thing about branches and fruit and all of that uh, because he's uh, talking to a group of individuals who uh, work with their hands and grow things all the time because he wants them to understand how all this fits together. But all he's doing is illustrating what he's already said um, here. So verse 17, Now if some of the branches were broken off and you though a wild olive branch were grafted in among them and have come to share in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree, do not brag that you are better than those branches. So again, just to reiterate, all he's saying is, is we got this vine, and this vine uh, is rooted in God's blessing. And God is blessing Israel, spiritually, physically, all the rest. But there's this unbelief. So he cuts off some of these branches. Then there's some other branches from a wild olive tree, and these branches believe in God. So he takes them, cuts them off, and he grafts them into the tree so they can now be uh, nurtured by the root, which is God. What a great thing that is. He says, but you have no room to brag. You were grafted in. All right? He says, but if you do brag, Remember, you do not sustain the root. The root sustains you. So basically, you've got nothing to brag about because you're not keeping all this together. The root is which, is, which is God. He says, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. True enough. They were broken off by unbelief. But you stand by faith. In other words, you didn't do anything. It's not because you were worthy or because you worked for it. It's by faith. You were brought in. So don't be arrogant, but be afraid. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Therefore, consider God's kindness and severity. Severity towards, the, towards those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, if you remain in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Now, some have become confused by that, thinking that somehow Paul is saying that they'll be cut off and they will lose their salvation. He's, this is He's talking about being grafted in to the root of blessing. Right? Yes, you're grafted in because you're saved, 
But there's not this idea that you're not going to, that somehow you're going to lose your salvation. That's not what he's talking about uh, here. So those who kind of draw that out of that have kind of forced that into the text and made it say more than it is because he's not illustrating all of that. Remember, all he's talking about here is just the failure of Israel meant riches for the Gentiles. So therefore, Israel's acceptance will be better riches for the Gentiles. That's all he's talking about. That's the context of what he's talking about here. That's why he talks about God's kindness and severity. And, ta- and there's a warning to us. Basically, you know, God may cut you off of his blessings. All right? And, we, and, and we, again, when we say that, we're not saying that God's going to, uh, you're going to lose your salvation. Right? We know that believers can lose their rewards through unbelief or through disobedience. Um, things can go awry for, for believers. God does discipline his own people. Hebrews says it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Um, so, you know, we don't want to become uh, so comfortable that we take God or the things of God lightly. Uh, we want to take them very seriously. So he says, um, verse uh, 23, And even if they, if they do not remain in unbelief, will be grafted in, because God has the power to graft them in again. So if they believe, he grafts these branches back into the root of blessing, and they will be blessed again. Um, for if you were cut off from your native wild olive against nature, and against nature were grafted into a cultivated tree, how much more were these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? So then that's all he's doing, is just talking about their attitude towards the Jewish believers and the nation of Israel, and trying to help them keep this straight and realize that they are, once again, as he's mentioned before, one in Christ. They are blessed by God. God has indeed judged the nation as God judges all people. Uh, there is a severity with God as well as a kindness. Because of what Israel has done, you are receiving rich blessings as a result of that. You should desire for Israel to return to God. Because, and remember that if that happens then it would be even greater riches for you. It's a good thing when this happens. So there's no room for arrogance, no room for bragging, because everyone comes to God, what, the same way? By God's grace. We receive God's blessing the same way, by God's grace. You know, he, he keeps coming back to that over and over again. So he wants this pettiness that's going on between the Gentile believers and the Jewish believers basically to cease. You know, there's enough, there's a mess on both sides uh, in their history. They don't have any room uh, to brag. All it does is reveal how great God is and how good he is. So he says uh, in verse um, 25, So that you will not be conceited, brother. I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. So a mystery, most of them in the Bible, is something that was unknown before, but it's being revealed. What is it? A partial hardening has come to Israel until the full number of the Gentiles has come in. That's it. So there's a hardening of Israel, which he's already mentioned before. Remember, he talked about um, them being insensitive, and we talked about them being placed on the side, and so that it's a partial hardening to Israel, and it's happened. And it's happened for a little while. And then, of course, um, what he says is that... Um, uh, so don't be conceited. And this partial hardening of Israel is going to last temporarily. And he tells us exactly when it ends. 
when the full number of Gentiles has come in. We don't know what that, what that number is. But when the full, whatever this number is that God knows about, of those who have come to salvation, then the next phase of prophecy is going to kick in and all these things that, other things that we've talked about are going to begin to take place. So, again, all of that just so they stop being conceited and arrogant and get back to living in light of the gospel and being grateful to God and live in humility and do the things that are right. Does anyone have any questions on all of that? <laughs> Got it all down. <laughs> all right, so we will finish, we'll finish up chapter 11 uh, next week. And then as we move into chapter 12, uh, what, what happens to the Romans is there's a slight shift in the writing of Paul. He will still deal with some doctrine, but most of what he covers will be just application. So because of all these things that he's talked about in the first 11 chapters, what does that now mean for how you live? How should that affect you in your day-to-day living um, and whatnot? So it's a little easier at times to track uh, when he gets into that. Okay? All right. It's, uh, too fast. Huh? You go too fast for my brain. Oh, well, I talk slower than I used to. <laughs> huh? I have one comment. Yeah, go ahead. Absolutely. Yep. I've learned a tremendous about from my friend Arnold Frutenbaum. It's just, it's unbelievable uh, the insight he brings to Scripture. They do. They do. Absolutely. They're steeped in it. Uh, if they're raised Orthodox, you know, they still have to memorize most of it. Which is amazing, I think. But you remember that um, doctor I told you that I had that was Jewish, and he was just so intelligent. And uh, I asked him, you know, I said, "Well, I said, what do you think about Jesus Christ?" And he said, uh, "Well, we don't believe that he's the Messiah, but we believe he's a great teacher, but." It's just like, I don't know if he just reads the Pentateuch, or do they read, some read, past, anyway, he was, he, 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 I said, but I mean, why, he, I said, why do you believe that? And he said, we just always believe this way. Mm-hmm. I said, but see, wouldn't you want to sneak away at lunch? I've got a Bible. Remember I got it from Arnold Kutchenbaum, the packet? Mm-hmm. And I went and sat it outside his door. I don't know if he ever read it or not, but I hope so. But that would mean this. I mean, because his they they observed they were mm-hmm. observed every is it Friday night through Saturday mm-hmm. night? Yeah. yeah, and they observed it. I mean, if he was on call, oh my God, yeah. <laughs> but he he just he had no good reason. I said, but why not be totally? Why not just read the whole thing? Well, in his mind, he is reading the whole thing. Huh? In his mind, he is reading the whole thing. The Old Testament's all there is. I know. And so. I remember what Arnold Frisch 
Paul said that he was mm-hmm. to get angry mm-hmm. that you know that even Christians even read the Old Testament. Yeah. It was, you know. Mm-hmm. But I hope you read it. I hope you didn't throw it in the trash. Anyway, yeah. That, that's as far as I got. I Remember that for during the days of Paul and Jesus, for for a vast majority of Jews, when their children went to school. They only studied one thing for the first 10 to 12 years. That was the Old Testament. And the belief was, the reason why they did that, the belief was is that your child develops their personality and their character in those years. So if you get that settled, then whatever they end up studying to become later, whether you become a carpenter or whether you become a rabbi or whatever it happens to be, you'll be fine because your character is intact. Um, and to them, the idea of teaching them all of your math and sciences and skill first is backwards. And so that's part of why I think their communities, at least the Orthodox communities, are always so strong, is because the first 10, 12 years is, is spent memorizing and studying uh, you know, the Old Testament. And so there's something to be said about that. Is it the whole Old Testament, or do some groups only study the... No, it's the whole Old Testament. So they, so they read Isaiah 53? Oh, sure, in their own reading, yeah. They, they no, I was talking about the public reading. I'm trying to figure out when do they think the Messiah is coming. Well, they're waiting. They're waiting for the Messiah to come the first time. We're waiting for the Messiah to come the second time. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your grace and kindness and love. We thank you, Father, again for the vast plan that you have for for countries as well as for individuals. We thank you, Lord, that there's no nation that's too big for you to use in whatever way you see fit and no individual that is so small or insignificant that you don't care about what happens to them. We ask that you would give to us, again, an abiding uh, love for you and your word and and a desire, Father, to represent you well wherever we go. We ask, Father, you would dismiss us with your blessing, that you watch over us and keep us safe. As always, we thank you, and we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.